0: idea for all this really
1: came from a dream. Yes, it did. Good evening and welcome to Knox Tonight's guest is Robert Guffey. Robert is an author and lecturer in the Department of English at California State University at Long Beach. A graduate of the famed Clarion Writers Workshop in Seattle, he has also written a collection of novellas entitled Spies and Saucers, published in 2014. His first book of nonfiction, Cryptoscatology: Conspiracy Theory as Art Form, was published in 2012. He's written stories and articles for numerous magazines and anthologies, among them The Believer, Black Dandy, Catastrophia, The Chiron Review, The Los Angeles Review of Books, The Mailer Review Review, Pearl, The Pedestal, Phantom Drift, Postscripts, and The Third Alternative. His, uh, one of his latest books is Camelio, a strange but true story of invisible spies, heroin addiction, and homeland security, which Flavorwire Wire has called, by many miles, the weirdest and funniest book of 2015. His latest book is Bella Lugosi and the Monogram Nine, which you can get at Amazon. Robert, welcome to the show.
2: Welcome, Robert. Uh, I thank you for inviting me on. It's our it's- pleasure.
3: Yes, and it's a great pleasure. And before we actually get started in the show, I I feel the need to just send our prayers and best wishes out to the family of Tracy Twyman, who has passed on. She was a member of the community, deeply respected and loved, uh, hard-hitting, deep research, and it's just a big loss. And we found this out through Clyde Lewis's website just 20 minutes ago. So...
2: Tracy, Tracy
1: Twyman passed away? Yes. yeah
2: Allegedly.
3: Here's what, here's what uh, Clyde said. We are so saddened to report the sudden death of former Ground Zero producer, accomplished author, and friend Tracy Twyman. Details of her death are private, out of respect for the family. Tonight, we will represent the best of Ground Zero featuring Tracy in, in her honor. We love you, Tracy, and we pray for you and your family. Clyde Lewis, Ground Zero Team. It's a, it's pretty terrible.
2: I, it's interesting. Uh, we were just talking about, right before we went on the air, about uh, Paranoia Magazine and how I, I used to write for Paranoia Magazine. And uh, I, I shared a table of contents page with Tracy Twyman many oh, wow. times, many uh- times.
1: Yeah, yeah we were is, just talking to her last month about coming on the show. So. Yeah,
3: this is hard. Really? This is mm-hmm. really a hard, hard hit for our community. It's sad. She's just so influential, and in, I mean, who cannot respect the deep research that Tracy does on the subject matter she dives into? It's yeah, it's it's shocking. Forty-one is so, too
2: you, young. <laughs> you, you you just found this out just twenty yes. minutes ago.
3: Yes. Wow. Yeah. Clyde Lewis has posted it on his website. So there are no details, of course. It's who knows what's gone on, but she was only 41, you know? And so, but I hate to, I always kind of, I just wanted to send our prayers out and mention that because it it is reverberating and it kind of hit me really hard. And so I just wanted to, Get that out because she's now in the mind. And of course, synchronicity has it that you were tied in with Tracy as well. So uh, here we yes, are.
2: Have- uh, yes, it's kind of a uh, there's a line in David Lynch's Lost Highway where a character says, There's no such thing as a bad coincidence. But of course, we know that's not true. Um, uh, synchronicity can be positive or negative, right? I, just as right before you said that, I, I was looking across the room at my bookshelf. And On top, I realized the book that's sitting on top of my bookshelf, staring down at me, is a Donald Wandre hardcover. Donald Wandre was part of the uh, Lovecraft Circle.
0: Yes. And uh, yes.
2: the book is the book is called "Don't Dream." Oh. And those are the big, <laughs> big bold letters in gothic lettering staring at me at the moment.
3: Wow, I, this is going to be a night of chills right now. I'm just like vibrating with them. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. These these circles, you know. So Some, let's hear you, Robert. <laughs> I'm gonna focus in on you. So give us, you know, what was the world like for you when you were little? What are your earliest memories? The things that kind of pop out, things that inspired you as far back as you can reach.
2: Uh you know, it's, uh, it's funny. One of the earliest memories, uh, I put that in quotes, one of the earliest memories I have is in fact a dream, though I say that uh, not definitively because I'm actually not entirely certain it was a dream, but it, it, it's as vivid to me as if it happened, so I assume it was a dream, uh, but uh, it, it was a um, the green hand. Uh, it was a severed green hand with uh, black and yellow cracked fingernails that um, emerge from the white linen closet in the hallway and uh, grab me by the throat. And I can still vividly see the green hand. And that's all I remember about it. But it it must have been a dream that I had very young, extremely young. Uh, But I was always afraid of the white linen closet because I thought that green hand was going to come out. (laughs) so i i I, i'm assuming it was a dream but uh you know
3: wow did the what are the features of the hand was like an old scary looking hand or was it
2: yes very uh i'm not sure about old but very sort of modeled and kind of like you know these nasty black warts on them with (laughs) the the, the veins kind of bulging out of them you know
3: oh yeah very like old witch old hag hand
2: Frankenstein yes, for hands. some reason, in my mind, I, I, I think it, it, I think of it as a male hand uh, with, with very uh, long uh, fingers, like a you know very facile, like a magician's hand, yes. but the uh, warty and green and cracked yellow, yellowish black fingernails. Oh the wow! The green hand.
3: How old do you think you were?
2: I, ha- I you know, I, I, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking like two or maybe three. Yeah, um, I, I know that uh, Ray Bradbury claims that uh, he remembers being in the womb. He, he has very vivid memories of being inside his mother's womb and even said that he remembered being born. And that inspired a short story that he wrote called The Small Assassin, which uh, I, I recently read actually to my daughter, who's 11. And I've been reading her Ray Bradbury short stories from a book called The October Country which he published back in the 40s and uh there's a one of the stories in there is called The Small Assassin and it's about a a baby who does all of these sort of passive aggressive strategic moves in order to kill uh his mother and father uh uh and um the 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 baby is actually sentient and 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 murderous <laughs> um. Uh, and, uh, and apparently, Bradbury said that it was his vivid memories uh, uh, as a baby and in the womb that inspired that story, uh, uh, w- which is interesting because uh, I saw Ray Bradbury speaking when I was 16 at Torrance High, which is where I went to high school at Torrance High. And uh, Bradbury would give a, a, a lecture there unpaid, Normally he would get exorbitant fees from universities for for giving lectures, but he would do this lecture for free once every year at Torrance High because that was the first place that ever asked him to speak. And so this would have been like 1987, uh, maybe, uh, maybe 1988. I saw Ray Bradbury speaking at Torrance High, and someone in the audience asked him, uh, "Do you ever get any of your short stories from dreams?" And uh, I remember his response vividly. Bradbury said. No, dreams are just—that's just the junk that comes out of your brain at night. It's like you know, urinating or <laughs> going to the bathroom. It's just—it's just the junk that's, that's leaving your brain. I don't pay any attention to it. Wow. Uh, I, I thought that was—I thought that was fascinating because it's the complete opposite of someone like um, William Burroughs. Yes, who drew very vividly, heavily on his dreams, so much so that he wrote a whole book of just his dreams, uh, "My Education," um, which came out yes. in the nineties at some point, which is a a fantastic book. Uh, and in fact, my my whole life, I've always been very fascinated by dream narratives, either nonfiction books about dreams or fiction that's somehow based around the concept of dreams, uh, whether it's uh, Carlos Castaneda in, in The Art of Dreaming or the, the Don Juan books that he wrote or um, Burroughs, H.P. Uh, um, Lovecraft, The Dream Quest of Aino and Kadath and uh, The Dreams in the Witch House and The Call of Cthulhu, the, the whole plot of Call, Call of Cthulhu is the fact that um, the main the main way that they know that Cthulhu is being called up is that all of these sensitive types around the world, artists and poets, uh, all having the same dreams or having shared dreams. Uh, so Call of Cthulhu is partly structured around the whole concept of dreams and shared dreams. Uh, there was a radio show, a radio drama that my older brother played for me when I was twelve. Uh, or 13 and it was written by a guy named thomas lopez who writes under the name meatball fulton he -hmm. writes radio dramas he writes exclusively radio dramas and he wrote a whole series of radio dramas about a character named jack flanders oh yeah Who was like a a dream investigator or or a dream archaeologist i guess you could say and he one was called moon over morocco uh dreams of rio Yes. Uh, and the one that I heard first was called The Incredible Adventures of Jack Flanders. And this completely blew me away because it was all about uh the guy Jack Flanders gets a crate in the mail and he brings it into his house and he opens it and inside is a green velvet chair. And he doesn't know who sent it to him or why. But whenever he sits in the green velvet chair, he is transported to a dream world. And basically it's a series of lucid dreams. He's dreaming lucidly and also their recurring dreams because he'll be in some dangerous situation and he'll wake up sitting in the chair and then he'll think, well, that was weird. But then he'll have the curiosity of wanting to know what happened next. So he'll sit in the chair again and it'll pick up. The dream will pick up where he left off. And the dream world and the real world begin to meld uh and uh fascinating uh and 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 this guy I never hear uh anyone reference <laughs> Me, Paul Fulton or thomas lopez but these these radio dramas are absolutely just brilliant um and very funny examples of uh north American magic realism I, I guess you could call it uh and uh um also I discovered a book when I was. 16 called Bones of the Moon by Jonathan Carroll, which is also all about dreams. It's about a woman living in New York who begins to have these recurring dreams where she's transported to another place and uh she has a great first line. Uh, I love really I love novels and stories that just have a fantastic first line that just kick you in the head. And and the first line of the of the novel of Bones of the Moon is the axe boy lived downstairs. You have to keep reading that story. The story (laughs) begins, the axe boy lived downstairs. You have to find out who's axe boy. (laughs) Who's this person talking to us? Why is he living downstairs? And so she begins to have these shared dreams with this axe boy uh, character. And it's all about lucid dreaming. And I heard an interview with Jonathan Carroll, who's a brilliant writer. Uh, Bones of the Moon was his third novel, I think. And many of his books deal with dreams and, and similar phenomena and and uh, Jonathan Carroll said he did not know had never heard the phrase uh, lucid dreaming uh when he wrote the book oh, wow. um and later on people came to him and said oh you must you know you must uh be into lucid dreaming and he was like what's that uh and um it, 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 sort of similar to uh I, I I the very first person who interviewed me about Camelio, which is my book that came out in 2015 was Tessa Dick uh, the widow of Phil K. Dick. She has a radio show called uh, Ancient of Days. And she had to be on talking about Camelio And she started talking about how much my book Camellia, uh overlapped with experiences that she and Phil Dick had had in the 70s w- when living in, in Orange <laughs> County. Uh, and which kind of blew my mind. You know, I mean, she oh, she yeah. actually told me this book actually made some of these experiences make sense to me at last you you answered a lot of questions that me and phil had back in the 70s by writing this book <laughs> That's so, astounding. Uh, it was astounding and and um uh, she she told me a story that uh when phil dick wrote the three stigmata of palmer eldridge which was inspired by a nightmare that phil dick had of this black iron face in the sky, this giant black iron face staring down at him at the sky from the sky that inspired the three stick motto of palmer eldridge and uh for years, Timothy Leary had said that that was that was the preeminent l s d novel uh that that if you wanted to know if you could translate into prose an l s d experience, then it was the three stick motto of palmer eldridge and uh one night, Phil dick got a phone call from Timothy Leary and John Lennon, who were in a hotel room <laughs> up in Canada. And at first, Phil Dick didn't believe it was either Tim Leary or John Lennon until John Lennon like, picked up a guitar and started playing a song and singing it through the phone. <laughs> and, and John Lennon told him that he loved Ubic and he loved Three Stigmata and Palmer Eldridge. And they said it was amazing how he had clearly taken LSD and written this novel based on it. And Phil Dick told him, I had never taken LSD. when i wrote that book i mean he'd never even been anywhere near it later he was just
1: a speed freak right he didn't smoke weed or anything
2: yeah he barely yeah tessa dick told me that she saw phil dick smoke a marijuana cigarette once in the entire time they were together and and she and she saw it and she was annoyed and like slapped it out of his face for even smoking it. So uh the idea that he was like just constantly like chewing just swallowing a uh, pure L S D like twenty four seven is not at all true. In fact she said he maybe took it maybe two or three times his entire life. Um I I so I think that's fascinating. Um uh these things that uh or we associate with Phil Dick as being like the premier psychedelic science fiction writer of the '60s and '70s, but much of that was just coming from him, from his yes. his brain. Yes, you know that's,
1: that's what. Quite I've been. <laughs> <laughs>
3: it, Well, we can get to these states. We can pull it out, and clearly, there are these amazing examples of people that just didn't touch anything, and and in some ways were really prudish, and yet look at the. You know, we look at bodies of work, and it, you know, here we are.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I remember in uh, in high school, I did a. We needed to do a um, oral report, and we could do it on any work piece on any writer. Uh, it was in a it was a drama class, and the, the professor's name was Mr. Slater, and I wanted to do it on Robert Louis Stevenson, and Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, but he said that that, that wasn't literature. Oh. Um. Uh, so I said I went to my next choice, which was Edgar Allan Poe, and he said that would be fine. I, I'm not sure of the distinction, That's like why one was okay yeah. and the other was not. Uh, so I, I did the presentation on uh, on Poe and the Telltale Heart. And at one point, the professor stopped me during the oral report and said, "You should mention, you know, one of the main things that made Poe's story so strange." And and I said, well, what's that? I didn't know actually what he was referring to at all. And then finally he said, well, you know, he smoked opium, and and I, I thought, well, a lot of people smoked opium. <laughs> 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 it wasn't a rare experience at that time. Um, but only one person wrote the Telltale Heart, and only one person wrote um, uh, the Arthur Gordon Pym, and yes, uh, and William Wilson, and on and on and on. Uh, so these things. Don't work unless the proper receptor is there, if you know what I mean.
3: I do know what you mean. And also, you know, back in in the late 18 and the late 19th century and all that, there was, you know, Coca-Cola's out there with real cocaine in it. And, you know, it was just a whole, the whole cultural aspect to some of these things that we now consider hard drugs was way different. And- oh, right. uh, it, you know, it was just a different experience, but this brilliant amount of work has come forth from that period and then even moving back to the romantic period when who knows what what was being taken, you know, that was just not thought of as uh, taboo. You know, it was kind of a cultural norm for artistic circles.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, You know, In fact, I actually remember having a conscious decision when uh, the professor said that. I remember, because I was like 16, I just turned 16 maybe, or maybe I was even 15 when I did this uh, presentation. I remember thinking, you know, I'm not going to mess around with any mind-altering drugs because I don't want years later people to say, you know, the reason his books were like that
0: <laughs> because
2: he ate a whole bunch of Sandoz pharmaceuticals, you know, in in high school. And uh so I actively consciously decided to stay away from any kind of mind altering drug, even though I had plenty of opportunities to do so in high school. People were shoving it at me. Oh, Here, yeah. try this, you know. Yes. Uh and uh I just it was it was just eventually understood that I wasn't interested.
3: Well, and they moved know, on. It, Some people just get there or just there when you're so back here in your earlier days, like, so you've given us a really great outline and definitely these influences are exactly what I expect knowing your body of work. Did you, did you have a relationship with nature?
2: I, I just, you know what, uh, before I get to that, uh, I just thought of something else, which was along those same lines: the fact that you know Lovecraft uh, was very prudish, and 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 didn't yes. experiment with any mind-altering drugs either. And um, there's also uh, Steve Ditko, uh, Steve Ditko, who created Doctor Strange, uh, the Marvel superhero, the yeah. Sorcerer Supreme, Doctor Strange. Steve Ditko's artwork was very in the 1960s super psychedelic. Uh, It was the one comic book that people, just normal comic book fans, who were like 10 or 12 or 13 read because it was this amazing superhero comic book. But people in the underground read it too, like Robert Crumheads also read Doctor Strange because it seemed to be so LSD-inspired. And everyone thought that Steve Ditko was a big acid head, that he had to be the biggest acid head on the planet. And so it was a big surprise to a lot of these underground artists Crom, like etc. When Steve Ditko later left Marvel and did a comic called Mister A and the Avenging World, where he came out as a very strident Iron Rand, um, very objectivist, uh, very very politically right wing, and and very much prudish, you know, uh, s- someone who would never. Uh, experiment with any sort of illicit substance. So it's interesting that these people are just sort of, they've tapped into their own subconscious in such a way where they don't even, uh, they they never even needed any of that. And so it, it, it it's just interesting that a lot of the times these people who have never touched any of these things are the ones who produce the strangest and, and most uh, uh, blatantly psychedelic works.
3: Well, Robert, what do you think that is? You know, what, what because this is something I've always observed too, and uh, and and then also having done way back in the day a good deal of uh, LSD and and mushrooms, and uh, finding myself in you know, thinking and back in the day too, there was not the internet when I was doing this stuff, so we would get into this stuff around. It. Local Media, or just ourselves, but it was generally art stuff novels and washing fish and fish tanks and and graphic novels, uh, strange art from the early periods, like Bush and mocha uh, and all this. What do you think what do you think that mechanism is that brought out such uh, crazy imagery and symbols yet that comes from people that could be considered prudish like what do, have you thought about that mechanism like what is that how did they naturally just tap into this that later becomes culturally associated with people with a psychedelic overlay on it
2: uh, it, uh it's interesting i uh read um uh harlan ellison the, the science fiction writer who Edited Dangerous Visions, which contains one of Phil Dick's most famous stories, uh, "Faith of Our Fathers," which is all about psychedelics and using psychedelics to control consciousness as opposed to liberating it to create yeah. a false reality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Allison, Ellison, uh, who wrote some very strange stories himself, he was at—he told some story. He was at a party with Theodore Sturgeon, like in the late '60s or something, and someone offered Harlan Ellison something to smoke and Theodore Sturgeon had to say, Oh no, 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 he's this guy is totally straight. And uh and they said Theodore Sturgeon said, this guy he doesn't need he's constantly tripping twenty four seven without <laughs> it. He's he's already there, you know. Terrence McKenna said something very interesting. He said, you know, um there are those people who need to dissolve boundaries and those people who need to maintain boundaries. Uh and that a lot. Most people need to dissolve boundaries. They're so um, conditioned by so many things that they really need some sort of circuit breaker, as Timothy Leary said. Some sort of circuit breaker to, 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 to break the patterns uh, and, the, and the conditioning. Uh, and for a lot of people, I think LSD serves that purpose. But other things can serve the purpose of being a circuit breaker as well. Uh, Timothy Leary. Uh, In in a lecture I heard him deliver in 1993, Leary was talking about how the way that the medieval cathedrals were built were specifically structured to have an effect on the human brain that was consciousness-altering, like an LSD trip, the stained glass windows, the bells ringing in a particular pattern at a particular time, the intoning of the uh, ritualistic chants, and, and all of that were intended to take you into a whole other place. Uh, of course, it was in the service of organized religion, but nonetheless, the purpose of it was to be a kind of uh, psychedelic experience, a medieval psychedelic experience. And other experiences can actually can, can create that as well. I, I When I went through the third degree of Freemasonry, It occurred to me Mm -hmm. after it was over that this, too, was an early version of a circuit breaker uh, moment. Mm -hmm. And that everything that happens in the third degree of Freemasonry is specifically designed to alter your consciousness and to pull you out of yourself and your body and make you see things from a different perspective. Uh, I mean, most of what I'm about to say is not... Uh, secret in any way you can get any of this from uh your local library but uh the you know the basic core right. myth of freemasonry is a is a death and resurrection myth like so many other religions have death and resurrection myths whether it's jesus or, or osiris or or odin uh et etc cetera, et cetera. and and so the 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 core uh degree ritual, which is really a a play that you're enacting, that you're you're actively participating in, uh, is essentially a death and resurrection story, and and you're the main character in that story. And so everything that happens to you, the way that you're led through the lodge, uh, what's done to you during the ritual, uh, what happens to you at the end of the ritual, all that is intended to pull you out of yourself. And be a, as as Timothy Leary said, a circuit breaker. And after after I went through the third degree, I realized this was this was an early LSD exper- uh, experience. This was this was the the, the third degree of Freemasonry was the closest you were going to get to <laughs> a, a, an LSD experience. Uh, and and yes, it, it, the purpose of it is to alter your consciousness. So. Uh, people can alter their consciousness in many different ways, and you can do it through meditation, of course, obviously, and but also I think people, some people are just born naturally more attuned to that state, um, and Lovecraft was one of them, and and Lovecraft had very vivid dreams, um, which he wrote about extensively. A lot, a lot of the stories were influenced by dreams. And I don't know about Steve Ditko, because Steve Ditko was such a private person, but uh, and he recently died, just last year. But I suspect that Ditko yes. uh, had a very vivid uh, dream life. I, I would have loved to sit down with Steve Ditko. <laughs> hmm. I would love to have heard Steve Ditko on this show. I would love to have heard about Steve Ditko's dreams. Um, but uh, by the way, in terms of the- <laughs> I've,
1: I've written the, to Alex the, Ross, if that's any consolation. Oh, really? Yeah.
2: And what did he say?
1: I never heard back.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to his response the the uh I, I have an article coming out because I've had various it, it, I've had various stories and even nonfiction pieces that were inspired by dreams, uh, and I have an article coming out um in New Dawn magazine.
0: Call Freemasons, New,
2: Dawn. uh, New Dawn's fantastic. And I've been writing for New Dawn off and on since about two thousand four, maybe two thousand five. Yeah. Yes, and, I know. Uh, I, I'm a subscriber. I pay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've had, um, uh, 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 in fact, many of the chapters in my first book, cryptoscotology came from from New Dawn, and, uh, and and many of them were originally in, in Paranoia as well. Uh, but I have a, an article coming out called Freemasons from Outer Space, and uh, it's entirely about analyzing the Masonic symbolism in extraterrestrial abduction stories going way back. Um, and I start out the article by talking about a very vivid dream uh, that I had in on February 17th, 1998, uh, and so I would do you mind if I read to you an excerpt from this article. Uh oh, please it's only do. one it's it's one page and this is the dream as I experienced it on February 17th, 1998. Um, and this is long before I was a freemason and long before I ever thought of being a freemason. Uh it says I walk into the Masonic lodge on Cabrillo Avenue in Torrance a building I've never before entered. I find myself sitting in a waiting room that contains a lot of empty wooden chairs. I look up at the walls. I see a very realistic painting depicting the face of a white owl. I glance back at the empty chairs, then turn to look once more at the painting. Now the white owl has changed. Its face has merged seamlessly with the attributes of an owl and that of an alien gray as seen on the cover of Whitley Strieber's 1987 book, Communion. In 2015, a ufologist named Mike. Cleland published a book called The Messengers, Owl Synchronicity and the UFO Abductee, in which Cleland reports that many abductees often first see their abductors in the form of owls. But in 1998, I had no knowledge that anyone believed owls and extraterrestrials were in any way connected. In the dream, I'm not surprised by this shift. I simply continue staring at the empty chairs. After a while, I glance back at the painting. Now the owl is gone, and the impassive face of a gray alien has taken its place. At this point, I rise from that uncomfortable little chair in the waiting room, stroll into the hall and approach a pair of ornate wooden doors above which are carved the words Masonic Research Center. I push Mm -hmm. the doors open and see a vast library of old, rare books on the other side. I very much want to begin reading them all. One particular volume stands out at the bottom of the shelf. I pull out the hefty tome and lift it. In the dim light, the title on the cover is unusually clear and is rendered in Gothic golden lettering, the Freemasons and the Guffy clan through the ages. I don't get a chance to read the book or even open it. Suddenly, I notice that strange, surreal creatures are wandering around in the musty, dust-speckled aisles. They weave in and out of the crowds of normal-looking humans, all of them elderly men, who are standing in the stacks looking at old books as well. The creatures appear to have emerged from a surrealist painting by the likes of a Max Ernst or Remedios Varro, some mad visionary with a bent imagination. The creatures become aware of my presence and begin to hone in on me. So I put the book back on the shelf and run. I find a staircase and traverse the steps two at a time. I pass the second floor, then the third floor, even though the Masonic Lodge in Torrance only has two floors. I press my palms against the metal door and emerge under the roof. It's nighttime. To my surprise, there's a helipad on the roof. A helicopter, its blades spinning faster and faster, is waiting for me. For a moment, I think I've escaped the angry creatures in the library. I start moving toward the helicopter, then pause abruptly. An eyeless stone dog stands between me and the helicopter. It's motionless. I know it doesn't want me to pass. Its gray, craggy stone flesh morphs into real skin. The dog, a greyhound, turns bright red. Then it moves towards me, its crimson eyes growing larger and larger. I turn away from the hound and begin to clamber over the side of the roof. Fortunately, in the complete darkness, my palms discover thick hemp ropes down which I climb to the sidewalk below. I'm confident I've escaped, and then I wake up. Now, I wrote that down. In 1998, about a year later, I, in downtown Torrance, which is where I was living at the time, I go into a um, a health food store that had been there since I was a kid. Like, before there was any, most people thought there was no need for health food stores, like when I was a kid. It was a strange thing. But there was a a, a little Asian woman and her husband who had this health food store in downtown Torrance. And so I went in there like early 1999 to go get, I don't know what it was, uh, some herb or something. And the woman who worked there was a wizened old Asian woman whose name was Mitzi. And she was, you would talk to her and she was, I I would describe it as casually psychic. In other words, she she wasn't sitting there dressed like a gypsy uh, with tarot cards, wanting money to to tell you your fortune or to read your mind, she would just in the in the midst of a conversation just throw out something that no one can know about you, and and she would do it so casually it was almost like what what just happened like you whiplash, like how did you know that? And then she would just shrug, as if it was no big deal, as if she didn't even know she was doing it. Oh, uh, I love that. Uh, And so she she, at this point, her husband had died several years earlier. And, uh, she's talking to me and she suddenly tells me, she says that her husband had been a 33rd degree Freemason. Uh, she, she said he was a Freemason. And I said, what degree? She said, only 33rd. I said, only 30, there's only 33. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but she said only 33rd. And then, and then, uh, I, I I said uh, she she points at me. She goes, "You're going to be a Freemason," <laughs> and I said, "I, I go, no, uh, I don't." Th- I, I, what, what, I mean, I knew I knew what the Freemasons were. Um, uh, I, I in fact, I had already written an article about Masonic symbolism in Macbeth by that point, which I had written when I was an undergraduate uh, for for a Shakespeare class, and the teacher tried to give me an F on it and. I, I had to go above her head and get it turned into an A, which is exactly what it deserved. Uh, but the, she just casually tells me, "You're going to be a Freemason." I go, "No, I, I'm not. I have no interest in that. I'm not. I've never been a joiner. I, I was never in the Boy Scouts. I can't imagine the circumstances under which that would occur. That's not going to happen." She goes, "No, no. It, it, you, you're going to be a Freemason." The, the flash forward, 2000. Two, and and now I'm joining the Freemasons. Now, the road between those two things is very convoluted, but uh, so I can't go through every single nook and cranny on the road there. But I can tell you that in 99, I met Walter Boart, and Walter Boart wrote Operation Mind Control, uh, which it was good that I read that because that later gave me the grounding in, in, in which to be able to write Camellio. But, um, uh Operation Mind Control was the first book to really examine uh, the CIA's MKUltra program and how, how deep and destructive it had been. Um, and it came out in uh, 1978. So I meet Walter Boar around 1999. And uh, he had moved to Santa Monica. And, and we even collaborated on a screenplay together called The Other Crusades, which was based on on Walter's uh, attempts to keep LSD legal. That whole screenplay was about Walter's involvement in the <laughs> early days of of LSD. Uh, I, mean, he, I mean, Walter had Walter had uh, not only had he written Operation Mind Control, but he was the editor. He had started, he had founded the East Village Other, which was the premier underground newspaper on the East Coast, and he had published early Bukowski and early Robert Crumb, and 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 he published Ishmael Reed's first novel oh, yeah. serialized in in the newspaper. Yeah. So, Boar had a tremendous impact. And and uh it was wild uh hearing his stories of those days in the sixties. And um uh Boart told me that he was joining the Freemasons and and the reason was that uh he was adopted uh and his real name was Kirby. Uh Walter mm-hmm. Kirby. Uh which is we were just talking about Steve Dicko earlier in terms of synchronistic names, Jack Kirby, uh-huh. Steve Dicko, but but Walter <laughs> Uh, Walter's real name was was Kirby, and, and it had taken him many years to find out who his father had really been. And by the time he found out, his father was dead. And um, his either his mother or some other living relative had given him a box of his father's belongings. And in the box was the Masonic apron and the Masonic scepter and all this Masonic regalia and, Bo- and, and Walter had always been fascinated by that stuff anyway, just like somehow it was in his DNA. And so he decided this was something he needed to do. So he joined the, um, the Fauché Lodge in Culver City. Uh, and um, he got through the first degree. But the thing is that Walter, uh, Walter is, is not with us any longer. He passed away in uh, 2007, December of two thousand seven from cancer but but walter uh was such a um uh, uh he had to 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 tilt at every windmill right uh so they they told him like look you got to memorize all this stuff you know every time you go through each degree you have to memorize more and more stuff and you have to say it back you know precisely exactly the way um it, it, it's like obscure prose poetry like archaic prose poetry that you have to memorize and then say exactly right uh and and i think walter that was just completely like <laughs> walter's brain couldn't handle that he actually proposed that he rewrite it as a rap song <laughs> so that he could remember it which i thought was a brilliant idea I but uh, they that. didn't go for it I, I would love to have heard that <laughs> rap this song. Version, yes Oh my uh, God. Uh, and, and, and so they were not willing to to adapt to walter's uh, ideas. And so he never got past the, the first degree, uh, at the Fauché Lodge, but I said to Walter, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in joining. Would, would you like take me down to the Fauché Lodge? And he goes, ah, you know, is that how I'm all the way in Santa Monica, you're in Torrance. Why don't you just walk down the street, the one that's down the block, you know, <laughs> uh, it, which is the one that I had dreamed about. Uh uh 'cause for I had grown up in Torrance and was at eighteen oh seven Cabrillo, apartment four, which is my the apartment I lived in. Great uh all my childhood. <laughs> and and down the street, just a few blocks, was the Blue Lodge, the Masonic Lodge. I'd walk by it all the time. And then as I got older I wondered about it, like, what are they doing there? And my mom was like, I don't know. <laughs> and, um and, and so Walter goes, just go down the street. Uh I so saw I was like, Okay. And so I go down the street to the Blue Lodge, and I walk in, and there's a guy there, and I say, where do you apply to be a Mason? And he goes, oh, well, here's the application. Uh, The guy goes, why do you want to join? And I said, at that time, I was in the MFA program at CSU Long Beach, and I had noticed that some of my favorite writers in the late 19th century and early 20th century had either been Masons or related they were in related secret societies whether it was theosophy or yeah. rosicrucianism or yeah. freemasonry and and we're talking you know Bram Stoker, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh H Ryder Haggard, Edgar Rice Burroughs, L Frank Baum who wrote the Wizard of Oz books. Yeah. was 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 very much into theosophy so was Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh and so Oh, Jules Verne. Jules Verne's books are are festooned oh, with Jules. esoteric uh, yeah. symbolism, and and uh, and you know, I could go on and on with other examples. But <laughs> um, I and so I, I I said to the guy, well, the reason I want to join is I want to understand the symbolism. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I analyze literature as a part of being, you know, a, a graduate student in in English. And I think I'd be able to analyze this literature better if I understood the symbolism better. Because there's a difference between reading about something. I mean, you could read about going through the third degree or read about Masonic symbolism, but it's not quite the same as actually going through it. It, it, You know, it's like trying to describe to someone going through the third degree who hasn't gone through it is like trying to describe to a blind man, a, a spiral staircase without waving your arms in the air. You know, it, <laughs> it, it, it's just something you need to, to experience for yourself. And I kind of just intuitively understood that. And I said that that was the reason. And and he said, um, I goes, he didn't say anything. I go, is that a good reason? And he goes, Oh, I, I've, I've never heard that reason. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not a bad reason. I I can't, I can't see it as being bad. So, okay and then when I was surprised because it just so happened that I was there uh this was the master of the lodge I was talking to and oh. <laughs> uh and I I started throwing out I, I said you know I've I've read Manly P Hall uh the 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 um you know his his classic uh, encyclopedia the secret teachings of all ages many other Manly and P Hall works um C W Leadbeater um I'm 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 throwing out these names right and uh he's staring at me blankly, and I, I i don't quite know what why he's looking at me with a blank expression on his face after i get that talking he goes yeah he goes, that's interesting i don't he goes i don't know any of who those people are
0: <laughs> Oh wow <laughs> uh, uh,
2: but that sounds fascinating like maybe you could like recommend some books i could read i uh, uh and, and uh I, I while i'm there talking to him i see that there's a door uh, and in my dream, there was a door that said Masonic Research Center. And here it didn't say Masonic Research Center, but there was a closed ornate door, and it said Masonic Library above it. And I said, "Can I go in there?" And he goes, "Oh no, you have to you have to go through the first degree uh, before you you can go in there." And I go, "Oh, okay, that, that that's cool." So then you know you pay the application fee. Then they send people out to go interview either your your family, or if you're married, they'll interview yes. your wife. Yep. And, and if the wife like has a problem with it, they'll just back off.
0: Yeah. Like
2: if the wife says, "I don't know if I want him involved in this stuff," that th- at that point they will just back off and not pursue it. Uh. Um. So, uh, at, at at that point, I was living with my parents. I was going to, in as I said, I was in the MFA program at, at CSU Long Beach. So, uh, they wanted. I think they wanted to talk to my parents. They sent three people out. To go everything comes in threes right so they send three people out to go interview people you know and stuff uh, and then uh, once that's done they then go through a process of uh, you, you know you've, you've heard the whole black ball white ball term you know blackballing someone because yes. the, 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 they they send you know a box around and if they don't agree that you should join they put in the person will put in a black black ball you know and if there's one black ball you don't get in you black ball uh so it has to be all everyone has to agree It has to be all white balls so so <laughs> apparently they they agreed uh uh and uh i i i get in i go through the first degree and after the first degree i go can i go in the library they're like no no you gotta go through the second degree <laughs> before you go into the masonic library and I, I i okay i guess the first guy you know either misspoke or whatever so then then i go through the second degree and at the end of it i go can i go on the Masonic library now, they go, you got to go through the third degree before you can go into the, (laughs) you have to be a master mason before you can go into the Masonic library, of course. Uh, So, and and then, by the way, in between the second and third degree, I wrote a short story called Cryptopolis that was partly inspired by my anxiety of imagining what the third degree was going to be like. Uh, So it's kind of a horror story. Uh, partly inspired by a dream that my dad had, so uh, remind me, and I'll go back and, and and tell you about that. So, so then I go through the third degree, and and at the end of it, I go. Can I go into the Masonic Library? They said sure. So, so they take me in, and they they open the doors, and I go into the Masonic Library, and I go inside, and what's what's on the other side of the ornate door marked Masonic Library? is a single shelf filled with a few books that I could get at any thrift store. Oh dear. (laughs) And my, my my library at home is 10 times better, uh, has better Masonic material than any of the books that are at the Masonic library on the other side of the ornate door, uh, which I thought was particularly appropriate. At that lodge. Um, Yeah. At that lodge. Yes. Uh, And then, (laughs) And it's interesting because when you when I began to talk to the other Masons, I, I, I realized that um, this guy, when he looked at me blankly when I mentioned Leadbeater or Manley P. Hall, that was not an anomaly. Uh, I, I don't think any one of them had ever read anything by Manley P. Hall or knew who he was. They 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 knew Albert Pike's name, and had probably flipped through Morals and Dogma, maybe a couple, of you know, read a few sentences. Yeah. Um, uh, and and so and and I and I discovered that they don't. As a friend of mine uh, commented, they almost don't need to know. Um, the the rituals are they're they're very um, they're all very dedicated people, and they're ex- they're extremely dedicated to doing the rituals correctly. Yes. Uh, uh, and everything has to be in place. I once wondered if if I thought was the, were these secret societies created by. Obsessive compulsives to justify their own OCD disorders, you know, before that was labeled as such. But the the it, 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 my friend commented, they they almost don't need to know as long as they're doing their rituals correctly in the way right. that they they have always been done. You you almost don't need to know uh, the symbolism behind it.
3: No, it, it, but the symbols are alive by doing the rituals,
2: and that's. That's
3: how they
2: yes. live. I and, and, of course, the symbolism is such that, I mean, Freemasonry is essentially an organization composed entirely of symbols and metaphors. Yes. And Ray Bradbury, who I mentioned earlier, wrote a book called Zen and the Art of Writing, which I usually assign in my creative writing classes when I teach creative writing at CSU Long Beach. The, the one text I assign, because most books about creative writing are, are unreadable. And completely useless. But <laughs> uh, Zen, uh, Zen and the Art of Writing by Bradbury is more, it's not a how-to, it's more inspirational. Like essays about creativity and how to inspire creativity. And and uh, uh, in there, he says, the key to any story is, is metaphor. Uh, you know, what is the metaphor? Finding metaphors in real life and realizing how that turns into a story. And if you have an idea, but you don't have the metaphor behind it, you don't have anything. Uh, and so, uh, Freemasonry is all about metaphors, symbols, and enacting those symbols and creating metaphors, manifesting them in a reality. Yes. So would it be right? Uh, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and and so, uh, what I later found out, particularly after meeting Richard Schoinger and I've, met, I've been, I then later met other masons too at other lodges. Like I went to the Fauché Lodge, which was the one that Walter never got never got through. And um, Steve, I, I interviewed Stephen Heller, who is the bishop of, of of the Gnostic Church in Los Angeles, and he's he's a high degree. Uh, he's also a member of the of the Fauché Lodge. Um, uh, meeting other masons, that there are masons who are interested in in the history of it and where it came from and the symbolism and the metaphor. Um, I think uh, this and
3: actually happening
2: yeah, Some t- to some degree yes i uh in fact i began to notice that uh soon after i got into it uh because when i when i entered the blue lodge and then i i was i went through the 32nd degree at age 32 uh-huh. oh,
0: uh,
2: at age <laughs> 32 nice. i went through the 32nd degree in um which was in 2004 uh, at the scottish ride in in long beach um uh i noticed that there were there was a vast gap between the ages everyone was either in their 80s or 90s yeah I
3: mean,
2: like world war ii generation people and then there were like people in their 20s coming in yeah uh so yeah that i mean that that right there tells you that something is going on i don't know if it's like the national treasure movies and 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 dan brown uh, and the popularization of of Hermetic symbolism in in popular media uh, that's causing that. Uh, but you do see a certain uptick in interest in younger people. Though I I I, I used to know someone who was a co-mason. Mm-hmm. Co-masonry is considered to be a um, a clandestine lodge by traditional Freemasons, in other words, a clandestine lodge means a not an official Masonic lodge, uh, but the Co-Masons were, were started in France, and, and that that Co-Masons um, accept the membership of women. Yes. And knowing uh, this uh, one woman who was a Co-Mason, we kind of compared notes, and I was fascinated by the fact that the Co-Masons seemed more interested in the occult side. Of a Freemasonry, whereas most traditional Masons are almost afraid of it; they, yes. they, they 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 don't want to talk about it. And yet, it's the heart of the whole thing, you know. It
3: is the heart. I think one of the thing I come from a long Masonic family. It's in in the Odd fellows and Eastern Star, all of it. And one one of the things I noticed was it was just something you did the family did it everyone before you did it so you were going to do it and and what i noticed in my generation was all of a sudden it seemed like there was a sweep where they just there was a freedom where you didn't wasn't kind of it wasn't forced on you to join these uh brotherhoods or sisterhoods and so there's the lull there's the gap that happened and you had all the World War tours up into you know that that's the gap I I noticed from being in a long line of them. I saw it in my own family, but I saw it yeah. all over. And those and those old timers were just in it to at least at least in my family. The I I don't think many of them were really deeply into any of the. Mm, the more occult side of it, I think they were just in it because that's what they were doing, getting the Shriners and <clears throat> do good for the community, help help the Brotherhood out. And uh, it, it, was, it was, you know, there, it was an outlet. And so, but what I had noticed in this last generation was I know so many Masons now, they're very into the historical stuff and definitely into the occult the beautiful aspect of the cultish stuff. Where do these symbols, where are they from? What are they, how are they operating? How are they overlaying? What's tied in here and the mystery of it all? Uh,
2: I I did an interview with uh, Richard Schoenker, who plays a huge role in my book, Camellio, because um, he's a scientist and he's also a Scottish Rite Mason. I, I met him in, we're both part of the same Scottish Rite uh, temple in Long Beach. He's also a Rosicrucian. So I did an interview with him that was in T- Nexus magazine a couple years ago where I simply focused on wanting to know how his history with Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry led to his uh, inventing this particular form of optical camouflage that was the main subject of, of my book, Camelio. Uh, and and he said in there that when he he joined the Masons, having a science background, he noticed that there was a lot of symbolism in the first three degrees that related to 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 science um, and to esoteric science particularly. But that none of the other members of the lodge seemed to be aware of that. However, when he joined the Rosicrucians, there were more people there who who were aware of that aspect to it of of sort of the higher levels, the the hidden levels uh so so and and richard became a mason in the 50s while serving uh in the navy on on guam so that was way back in the 50s yeah. and and i came into my blue lodge in 2002 and most of the people uh, it, it's funny most people who don't know any freemasons tend to think that all freemasons are like old white guys and uh, <laughs> in my lodge it, it's like 90% filipino Everyone's from the Philippines. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and and I and this is something I got directly from them. This is not my interpretation of it. What uh, the the master of the lodge in the in the second year I was there said to me, he said the, in the Philippines, the Philippines are like a hundred years behind the United States <laughs> in some respects, uh, and Freemasonry is much more important there than it is here uh in in the philippines it's very important if you want to move up in business yes. to be a freemason a lot of deals are made in the lodge etc kind of like you know the united states in 1919 as opposed yes. to 2019. <laughs> it's old school. Uh, uh, so he so uh, i was fascinated that uh, some uh, people would come through some young filipino guys would come in i've never seen before and they'd come in and and be initiated they would go through the, the third degree uh and then I would never see them again. And and I asked the master to lodge about this, and he said, "Oh yeah, well, it's so difficult to get into the Freemasons of the Philippines if they'll fly here, get initiated here, and then fly back, uh, uh, oh, and then wow. they they can use it to their advantage, you know, to to go up the social ladder in, yes. in the Philippines." Yes. Uh, so there you have obviously they they don't they don't care about the esoteric symbolism <laughs> you know or or where all this stuff came from um uh in fact when i when i met richard um i had been i had already been accepted into the shriners i was i had applied and i was going to go into the shriners um and then richard said you know i really wouldn't advise that <laughs> uh, and and I said w- why and he goes he goes you seem to me more like me like you're interested in, in in the history of this and he goes it the shriners are the antithesis of that <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, you lovely. know they're, it's 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 a giant frat party yeah is what it is <laughs> uh, and uh it's the I really wouldn't side. recommend you waste your time you know <laughs> But you can have uh, so, fun of the little cars. It's
1: almost the esoteric <laughs> yeah. side of Freemasonry.
2: I, I, I am. Uh, I. It is unfortunate that I, I wasn't able to drive around in the little car. But you know, well, you can, with
3: you the Feds, several orders. I mean, you can be a royal jester and a Shriner. I mean,
2: oh well. <laughs> of course, the, the, it's interesting how people. Everyone knows. Well, most people know about Freemasons, but there's all these other. There's hundreds of esoteric orders. Yes. No one knows about. It. And one right. of those is the Royal Order of the Jesters, which you just mentioned. And Unless most people don't know husband. that.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, really? It was yeah. he? Did uh, did, he, did he did he say Mirth is king?
3: You know, <laughs> I, <laughs> this, his name was Forrest Bain out of Ottumwa, Iowa, if you want to find him. But actually, he's now passed. But he, he's the one who... He he joined. First of all, I didn't know this. I was young, but you know, he said they approached him, right? Yeah. So he wasn't even aware of them at some point in his journey. But his father was one, and so he did like his father when he got out of the war. He's a boomer, and uh, and so I think he had already been a Shriner, and then got approached. But when he got he, he when he was on his deathbed for double lung transplant he after my momo had died his sister he was feeling very generous with stuff that that he kept really private because though we're eastern stars and odd fellows and stuff he didn't involve we didn't know what other orders he was involved in within the masonic uh uh, Avenue, and so he brought out boxes of goodies and was showing us and telling us stories. So that's when I first heard about uh, the royal just the jesters.
2: That that's interesting uh, because it's interesting that you said he was approached. Because of course, uh, in Freemasonry, it's actually strictly you're not allowed to approach anyone in Freemasonry if you're in terms of the. One through 32nd degree, either it's either in the Blue Lodge or the York Rite, right, right. Or Scottish it, Rite. You, you you you're not supposed to um, go up to anyone and say, "Hey, you should be a Freemason." You can tell people, "I'm in the Mason. This is what it's like." And you know, if they bring it up, then that that's fine. Uh, but you're you're that's why you see in the bumper stickers to be one, ask one, right? You're supposed yes. to ask <laughs> and not be approached. But it, 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 in it, in this case, yeah, you they of course. You, you you can't ask because you, many of them don't even know that there is a Royal Order of the Jesters. Yeah. Um, and then you might be interested to know that once you get up to the top of the Royal Order of the Jesters, you might be approached by another organization. Yes, <laughs>
3: yes, exactly. That was what he, and that's why I'm not going to talk about this on air, but that uh, that's what I had learned you know, straight from my uncle Forrest. So and he kept all that so tight-lipped that we were, our core family is really tight, and uh, you know we did not know this. This was in in him thinking he was not going to survive the lung issue. His little baby sister, my mother just died, and so he was feeling very open, and it was great.
2: I, I by the way, this is um, uh, possibly meaningless, but. Uh, I I was one time I was at the blue lodge and it was after one of the rituals and I was sitting around, I was looking at everybody at the lodge and I thought to myself, which guy here would be a jester, (laughs) which the guy here who would be a jester. And so there was one particularly loud guy, uh, loud. And I guess you could describe him as obnoxious. Yes. So there was a guy I knew who was, they were both sitting at the same table and there was a guy I knew who in fact had been one of my coaches, who's sitting on the opposite side of the end of the ta- of this round table with this other guy who I thought, if there's a jester here, it's that guy. So I sit next to the guy I knew who was who had been my coach. And I sit down next to him. Because I, I know if I just go up to this guy and ask him about the jester, he's not going to tell me anything. Anyway. Yeah. So I sat down next to the guy who I knew who had been my coach. I sit next to him and we're talking. And then I just casually say to him, what, what's up with the jester's? Uh, and so the coach goes, Oh, the, the world or the jesters? He goes, Oh yeah, I don't know. He goes, I'm, I'm not a member of the jesters. And then he goes, Hey, Hey. And and he calls out to the guy on the other end of the table. He goes, aren't you a jester? And then the guy goes, yeah, I, I, say, I knew it. I, and so now it's not me asking. It's the other guy. Yes. And So now, because the other guy asked, now he just starts talking. Uh, and he goes, Oh yeah, we meet every, um, at the beginning of the month, at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. In fact, earlier this, this you know earlier this month, um, the keynote address was given by the uh, chief of police of the LAPD. I was like, oh, so the chief of the LAPD is a gesture, okay? And then uh, I go, do you always meet at the Los Angeles Athletic Club? And he goes, yeah, that's generally where we get, where we get together. And I go, so what what do the gestures do? And he goes, he goes, we have fun. We have fun. <laughs> <laughs> um and 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 the next time now uh this is this is fantastic because this is you can't make this up you can't make this up i the guy who had been my coach uh he he sends me an email he goes hey uh you might want to come down to the lodge next week because we've got a celebrity coming being initiated into the into the lodge in Torrance i go well, who who is it uh, he goes it's roddy roddy piper uh-huh. now i i, I go that my brain is exploding because of course roddy piper is the star of they live yes. one of the greatest <laughs> films ever made they live is in fact you know a documentary uh metaphorically uh a document it's a metaphorical documentary
1: which john uh, carpenter denies by the way
2: <laughs> well i would deny it too if i was john carpenter yes of um course. Uh, uh, but but uh uh, there's this, right, you know, the scene where he first puts on the glasses, it's it, yes. it's the greatest, it's one of the greatest scenes of any film ever is where he first puts on the glasses and goes out and, he, and now he's decoding all the billboards and the ads and what they're really saying. Uh, Roddy Piper, immediately after putting on the sunglasses, he turns the corner and he immediately passes the Los Angeles athletic club. I, I, I noticed that that was after I had talked to this guy about that. He said, that's where the gestures meet. I watched they live soon after that, and noticed the Los Angeles Los Angeles Athletic Club right there in the background as Roddy Piper puts on the sunglasses and then walks down the street. So you like note that how? the next time you watch it. I've known
3: so that. That is genius.
2: And then, and then, so he tells me that Roddy Piper is being initiated, and uh, I was like, "That's." That's just mind boggling. And, uh, and for, for various reasons, I could not attend the night that he was initiated, uh, uh, which I kick myself uh, for this uh, to this very day. But when I saw they live in the theater with my girlfriend in high school in 1988, uh, I did not think that later in 2003, uh, I would be Lodge Brothers with Roddy Piper. That's very strange
3: it's 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 really genius <laughs> i I'm friends with um with one of the members of the Reseda Lodge, the six 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 lodge
2: <laughs> ah I, I, and i have a i have a friend uh in fact, he's a UFO researcher, uh Randy Copang, uh, who lives in Reseda. Uh in fact, he's lived in Reseda most of his life. He wrote a book called Camouflage Through Limited Disclosure, which is like post-graduate level UFO book. And uh Randy lives in in Reseda and his his grandfather had been a mason. And in fact Randy had been a Masonic mascot when he was a kid. Uh <laughs> they had him hold this Masonic sword in this like in this ceremony, etc. But uh yes, I'm I'm very familiar with with Reseda and I've never been to that lodge but uh my friend Randy, his family, remembers of that lodge.
3: Yeah, uh, they're fantastic. William is the person I know and say his last name. But, uh, okay, we have drifted. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> a little bit. I, thank you, everyone. We, good night. Good night. While,
3: while we're still here, though, your dad's dream with the Master Mason, I have question mark. <sighs>
2: Oh, yes, yes. Uh, my, my dad had a dream that he it was very vivid, and he t- I remember him telling me the dream. And uh, he said the dream was that he was floating. He was flying over a city. And he described to me what the city looked like. And he said they were like all these little houses, uh, and everything was gray, and all the houses looked exactly the same, and they all had like little... Like lights on, like the one light on up in the second story of each of these little houses, and uh, he just dis- he described the little city to me, and he was floating through the city, like through between the the houses, and he was describing what it looked like, and he floated past the pier, and, and he said it was like he was floating through like a little toy city, you know, but it wasn't small, it it was big, but there was like no life in it. Uh, and and he, and he woke up gasping uh, for for breath, and uh, his his description of that city was was so vivid that I used it as the description. I, I wrote a story called Cryptopolis, uh, crypto secret polis meaning city, right? So secret city, uh, and Cryptopolis uh, appeared in a magazine called uh, uh, Phantom Drift. Um, I think issue number two. I believe and uh cryptopolis was written in between going through the second degree and the third degree and so it's it's kind of a horror story because it reflects my anxiety of of what was going to happen in the third degree and then after i went through the third degree i wrote a follow-up story that's linked thematically at least it is in my mind the story is called initiation and that story you can actually find online because it was published by rudy rucker rudy rucker's a brilliant Science fiction writer uh, who started a, a webzine called Flurb, F L U uh, R B. And so I was very proud to be, uh, I, I wrote three short stories for him uh, when he was doing Flurb. And I shared a table of contents page with, you know, William Gibson and Bruce Sterling and John Shirley and all these uh, major science fiction writers. Uh, and uh, so the story, this particular story is called Initiation. And uh, if you read that, uh, know that that story was written immediately after having gone through the third degree. And so it has a different tone than Cryptopolis, which was written between the second and the third. Uh, so it, initiation was not, that story was not inspired by a dream, but it's certainly purposely dreamlike in its structure and its imagery. So you you might be interested in reading that.
3: I'm definitely gonna look that up. Hopefully, Jerry links that for me. at The Princess Treatment. I'm I'm definitely interested.
1: Well, what was it called? I missed the title.
2: The story is called Initiation, and it's it's in a Rudy Rucker's magazine Rudy Rucker, called Rucker. Flurb. So if you just if you just like Google Flurb, mm-hmm. Initiation, Robert Guffey, you'll probably come across it. Okay. And illustrated by Rudy Rucker's paintings. And photographs, which is cool.
1: Which are interesting. I am familiar with Rudy and I've actually I don't know if I invited him to be a guest, but he's on my list.
2: That would be a fantastic show.
1: Yeah, he used to write for Omni, I think. That's where I first oh. read.
2: Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The, the first Rucker story I read was called Tales of Houdini. Hmm. Uh oh, yeah. in a book called Mirror Shades, which was a cyberpunk anthology. I and read, the Tales of Houdini that's a fantastic uh, – and also Rucker, uh, I really recommend his book, uh, The Hollow Earth and Return to the Hollow Earth, uh, which is about um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe is is a character in the book. And you see how he came up with the idea for a narrative of A. Gordon Pym, Poe's only novel, uh, because Poe actually went to the Hollow Earth and experienced it. And we learned this, this secret history in in The Hollow Earth by Rudy Rucker. I um, highly recommend that, that record novel. All right.
0: I will right, we'll check that out.
3: I want to get some of the nuts and bolts out of the way, just a little bit. Just, um, were you an only child?
2: Uh, no, I have. As I said, everything comes in threes. There were three of us, three brothers. <laughs> I, I was the youngest. Uh, the oldest was 10 years older than me. Oh, the second youngest, eight years older than me. Oh, uh, so obviously, I I think it's safe to assume that I wasn't planned. <laughs> of course so, not. So I, I I I don't know. I I've never come out and asked specifically, but that's just my that's my impression. But uh, uh, so yes, there were. I had two older brothers.
3: Did you were you brought up with religion at all?
2: My my parents never raised me with any kind of religion at all though though my dad was raised an irish catholic um he in fact he i remember watching the belushi movie blues brothers the that dan Aykroyd, john belushi uh, movie blues brothers you know with the, the crazy nun yeah, how much fun did it the one <laughs> <laughs> so, that scene my i i watched that when i was very i was a kid you know and my dad turned to me and said that's exactly what catholic school was like that's exactly <laughs> what it was like That's true that is non exaggeration and he 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 would tell me stories about you know raising his hand and asking some innocuous question and then the answer would just be like a swipe at the side of his mm-hmm. head you know with with the ruler uh so he had no particular respect for <laughs> religion I, I don't but then again the thing's out i don't remember them ever saying anything that was negative against it except for that <laughs> saying yeah this is exactly what it was like being at a catholic school um my father I, 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 I don't to remember any himself. impression one way or the other really
1: my dad loved to uh, show us his scars from the rulers that hit his knuckles oh. as a child
2: oh my goodness and
1: i've got a, a personal synchro with the blues brother <laughs> brothers thing because i was an extra in the civic center scene
2: oh my god that's amazing <laughs> Jared. That, the, is, that is i didn't uh, know that
1: yep yeah. I was a freshman in high school.
2: That's awesome. That that, that, that is (laughs) synchronistic linguistics right there. That's that's pretty amazing. I I just realized just now that I have a book called Spies and Saucers, which is a collection of three novellas that all take place in the 1950s. Um, And the first story is called The Fallen Nun. And it's all about this nun that falls out of the sky and lands in this guy's marijuana garden up in Malibu. And... (laughs) Uh, it's 1959, so the guy he doesn't know if he should call the cops because now there's this dead nun lying face down in his marijuana garden. But if he does call the cops yet, ha- they're going to see the marijuana garden, so he's not sure what to do. And then these two men in black types show up, knock at the door, um, and then it spirals out from there into being about smoking the the reptilian skin of a of a of a of, a, of, a, of an alien, which triggers spontaneous time travel okay. um and and flying to the moon and and all this other stuff uh but i it just occurred to me that there's a kid that that nun character who's quite quite strident uh in the in this story uh, uh i just occurred to me that maybe she's based on that my dad telling me about the nuns that that uh that uh raised him maybe that's where i got the idea for the fallen nun story
3: I often think these things are connected and somehow we don't see it until a later review when we're, you know, and like this, we're talking and then there's a a dot and a dot and a line.
2: Absolutely. It's like, um, like therapy.
3: Well, with that said, how much of your, work which is to me an which is art really has been informed by your dream world you did give us a little bit of that earlier there,
2: there's I've, I've written a lot of stories that were actually just directly dreams that became stories and and there was a a story i wrote uh, that was published also in the phantom drift the same magazine that published cryptopolis the story the sheet was published in 2017. It's called the sheet. That is the name of the story. And this dream I had in January of 2001, and it was a very vivid dream. And I, I was um, in the dream, I leap out of bed and and I run into the hall, and I'm naked. And uh, it's early in the morning, like 6 a.m. or something. And there's kind of like a diffuse kind of gray sunlight coming in through the through the the bathroom window. Because I run from the bed uh with my with my sheet in my hands, and it's a beige sheet with the word "sleep" all, printed all over the sheet. Sleep, 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 sleep. And I gr- I grab the sheet and I run down the hall into the bathroom and I start shoving the sheet down the toilet and I keep flushing it uh, until the whole sheet goes down the toilet. The second the last wisp of the corner of the sheet goes down, swirling down the drain, a rumbling occurs. It's this giant roaring. Uh, like an earthquake, like the seven point one earthquake that just shook California the other day, that was pleasant um and it was like an earthquake, and so the whole building and i 'm in i 'm in a, an apartment building two story apartment building. the whole building begins to quake the second the sheet goes down the toilet, and it starts to move, and the whole building is is rumbling down the street and it's crushing houses and cars and fire hydrants are being knocked out of the way uh and i'm trying to hold on and the whole building somehow goes up onto an on-ramp onto the 405. so now the whole building is just careening down the 405 and everything's shaking and i hear a helicopter up above and i leave the apartment i don't know if I, i put on clothes, or or I can't remember, probably put on some clothes, go out into the the second floor landing, and there's a rickety wooden ladder going up to the roof. So I climb the ladder, and I go up there, and I see there's another tenant up on the roof already, like a next-door neighbor. And I go up there, and there's a helicopter hovering above us, and it's either a news helicopter or a rescue helicopter, and they send down like a rope ladder down to the building so that we can climb it and get onto the helicopter the, me and the tenant the, the neighbor reject the rope ladder entirely and decide we don't want to we don't want to leave so we go back down the wooden ladder and we go to the, the neighbor's apartment and we sit there and we start listening to old radio shows from the 1930s like X-Minus 1 the shadow and we're just sitting there listening to the radio show as the the whole building's still rumbling and careening towards Santa Monica the Santa Monica pier like towards the beach uh, and we listen to radio shows just calmly for like maybe 20 minutes or so, a half hour. Then uh, everything starts to shake in a different way as the whole building has now gone into the ocean and is sinking. And we, me and the neighbor go out onto the second floor landing, and there's all these other people in the apartment building looking up in fear up at the, the uh, wooden ladder going up to the building, going up to the roof. And all of them are looking up and not wanting to climb the ladder for some reason as if they're scared. Uh, and now, but now, now water starts to rise or, or rather actually the building is sinking, uh, into the Pacific ocean. And so at the last minute, all the other people in the building start, uh, clambering up the ladder, but there's too many people and it's too late. And they all go like falling into the, into the water. Me and the neighbor just go back into his apartment, uh, where we were listening to the radio shows and we turn on the TV. And my neighbor hits zero, zero on the remote control. And on the screen, on the zero, zero channel, you can access your past dreams. So it it, it on the screen is the dream I was having right before I woke up and started flushing the sheets down the, the toilet. And it's a nightmare. And on the screen, you can see what the dream was. And I'm in a cocoon, a silk cocoon uh, with spiders all over me. And I'm hanging above a ornate like marble spiral staircase that descends down into darkness. Um, And the only choice is either to sink into the ocean or to climb back in through the screen back into the nightmare that I was having before. The tenant, for some reason, the image on the screen disturbs him. And so he runs out and, and sinks into the ocean with everyone else. I decide to jump into the screen, back into the nightmare, because there's, there's no choice. So now I'm in, back in the nightmare I was having. I'm in, wrapped in the silk cocoon. There's spiders crawling all over me, and I start swinging back and forth to try to dislodge myself from the silk cocoon. And all that manages to happen is that it snaps the, the, the thin silk thread that is holding the cocoon aloft, and I tumble down the staircase in this wrapped in this. Silk so cocoon all the way down to the bottom where there's a bunch of people like shadowy faceless a crowd of shadowy faceless people at the base of the staircase and i go all the way, roll and tumble all the way down uh, bones breaking as i'm tumbling down the staircase i land plop on the beach and there's a there's a, a vast ocean of crimson water like it's an ocean of blood and now my arms and legs are completely useless and I try to crawl kind of like the armless legless man in Freaks who kind of rolls around on his on his torso the the, the living torso he was called yes. kind of like that I tried to squirm <laughs> away still with my broken arms and my broken legs wrapped in this cocoon tried to get away from the the stairwell and I end up going into the ocean and drowning and I woke up <laughs> Now, that was a very vivid dream, and I immediately wrote it down, uh, and I and it stayed in my notebook for years, and then um, it was like December of 2016, and I was sick, and I pulled out an old notebook, and I found the dream. Now, what fascinates me is sometimes you can write something, particularly when you were younger, you can write something that you thought was really fantastic, like that, that man, I just wrote something that's amazing, and then you look back, and you're like, oh, man, I was That was terrible. But then there can be something that you just dashed off without thinking about it. And that can be far more durable than the thing that you thought was so great. So I found this dream in there and I thought, this is, it just needs an ending. And so I I came up with, like, I wrote, I just added the final paragraph, uh, which I thought it felt. Like appropriate that, that that it took that long for me to understand like what the ending of the of the story should be, and then I submitted it to Phantom Drift and they bought it on first submission, and so it appeared in Phantom Drift in October of 2017. Yeah, it's called The Sheet, and I kind of like the uh, ostensibly quotidian, mundane nature of the title. You know, just <laughs> right. the, and then the noun, and it doesn't sound like it's going to be that interesting.
3: Well, and, and, and just the fact that, that is incredible, by the way. I am just applauding that. Just the fact that the sheet has sleep all over it, too, was, you know, just that little detail alone.
2: And then oh, yeah, that's fantastic.
3: Access to past dreams. That's pretty genius.
2: Yes, it's it's almost, um, it's like a meta dream. Um, because it, it starts out after a dream has occurred. That you know my memory of the dream is that it begins with me waking up, and that's not until later on that I realized, oh, that was why I woke up <laughs> uh was because of that nightmare I was having and then and right. then to go back into the nightmare you didn't know you were having that, that's very layered
3: <laughs> it's so good, oh Robert, it's so good. this is why your writing is so good, I love it uh so. All right. Tell us how you, so we've got an idea of how you dream and it's out there. What about things like OBEs and lucidity within the dreams? It already sounds to me like you, at least your dreams are very vivid. And sometimes I associate the quality of extreme vividness. Is that even a word? To, as a pathway to getting to lucidity
2: you know, it's interesting. I've I've experienced lucid dreaming a couple of times very minutely. I, I mean, for a second, I was aware I was in the dream and and, and controlling it for like, it, it feels like a microsecond before I woke up. And it's only happened like a couple of times. I've never attempted to do it. I've, I've never tried. I, I've never gone through any exercises, right, to try to um, spark it on purpose. Uh, Um, but the first time, um, was when I was very young, like 12, and I had never heard the phrase lucid dreaming, but I did, I did realize I was dreaming and I started doing things, mundane things, nothing. I I mean, it's sort of like you suddenly have the keys to the kingdom and then you just squander it. You know, (laughs) know, I should have been flying or something. And instead, I, I don't know, I, you know, manifested a, uh, you know uh, the comic book i wanted that week or something you know i I don't even remember what it was i just remember that briefly i was able to control what i was doing um and then i woke up and then maybe it happened one more time years later uh so i haven't had that much experience with that in particular but i've had experiences with um I don't know if you would call it shared dreaming or not, but actually, I don't even know what category to put this particular story in. But th- this happened in uh, 2006. Um, I-, I was reading, um, we-, we-, we just, before we went on there, we were talking about the year 1994, because that's the year Secret Cypher of the UFO Knots uh, came out by Alan Greenfield, which I read when it came out. Uh, but another book I read in 1994 was um, The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings by John A. Keel which was a revision and update of a book he wrote in 1970 called Strange Creatures from Time and Space. Uh, but I hadn't read the original edition. I read this this newer edition called The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings. And in that book is a chapter called The Bedroom Invaders. And he talks about these um, red and black plaid shirted men who will appear at the foot of your bed and just stand there. and People have reported seeing this red and black plaid-shirted man like th- th- a through decades.
1: It's flannel man.
2: Well, fl- flannel man, yes. Yeah. Uh, and and um, now, what's interesting is uh, so. Flash forward to 2006, uh, and I'm in bed with my girlfriend uh, at the time, who who's now my wife. And um, I wake up, and there's a figure standing at the end of my bed. It, it's not wearing a red and black plaid shirt. You can't see anything about it except that it's a man, clearly the silhouette of a man with a kind of shadowy face. Uh, You can't tell any details about color or what he's wearing at all. Uh, But I tried to get up and tackle him and I couldn't because I was paralyzed. Um, So I start to shout and then I felt my girlfriend waking me up uh, and and she goes, "Uh, what were you you know what the hell were you dreaming about uh and you she goes you were shouting in your sleep and i go there was a man at the end of the bed and i was trying to tackle him and i couldn't move and my girlfriend who's half asleep mumbles under her breath was he wearing a red and black plaid shirt and then she just rolled over on her side and went back to sleep uh and and I, I i i shook her awake and i go what did you just say and, and she goes what i go you asked me if the figure was wearing a red and black plaid shirt, you know, why why did you ask me that? Uh, and she goes, I don't know. <laughs> and and I said, Did I ever tell you about this John Keel book? And I and I pulled it out from the shelf across the room. I knew I hadn't. I, I knew I had never mentioned it to her. And I show her the, the the chapter called Bedroom Invaders in the paragraph where he goes into the red and black plaid shirt. And she goes, No, you've never showed me that book. And to this day she doesn't know why she asked me that question. Uh and of course I've since learned that other people have actually seen the red and black plaid Shirt man, you know, standing at the end of the bed. But um I thought it was interesting that I actually didn't see the red and black plaid shirt, but my wife asked me about it, even though she knew nothing about it, and she was half asleep at the time.
3: <laughs> that uh, is, that's really fantastic, a, a great example of this because she wasn't aware, you weren't aware, of the flannel man. She's half asleep and brings this piece in. This is incredible.
2: And then – and now this is – now, you'll find this interesting because this is an example of a shared dream, but it's not my dream. Um, uh, This would have been like maybe a year earlier than that, like around 2005, and an ex-girlfriend called me on the phone, the same uh, uh, girlfriend I mentioned who I saw they live with. We've remained in touch over the years. She calls me. This is 2005, roundabout. And she tells me uh, this dream she had the night before. And in the dream, she and I had been having sex, even though we haven't been dating for many years. Okay, So right after she wakes up from this dream, this erotic dream, her boyfriend, who's sleeping next to her, wakes up in a cold sweat and he's crying. And my, my ex-girlfriend says to him, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And he said, I just had this vivid, realistic dream that you were having sex with Robert. And my ex-girlfriend says, you, you can't then say at that point, that's amazing, honey. I, I had the same exact dream just now. Uh, like, you can't, there's no way to say that, right? Uh, so she just says, there, there, baby. You know, that's just ridiculous. But uh, what I find fascinating about that story is that clearly they were having the, a shared dream. And who was the originator of the dream? Was it her? Was it him? Was it simultaneous? Um Is it possible that people who sleep together night after night begin to sync up in the dreamscape, you know? Um, It it almost reminds me of, um, you know, the book DMT, The the Spirit Molecule? Um, Who wrote that book? Do you you know that book? The the guy, the professor who did all these experiments with DMT. Yes, Um,
3: Jerry should know that, actually.
2: Yeah. um, Anyway, it it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Sorry. Whatever, whatever his name is, Rick Strassman. So he, he did all these. Yeah, yes, yes, that's right. He did all these tests with DMT, in which he did administer the DMT to two different volunteers, and um, they were in two different rooms and didn't even know of each other's existence. And then afterwards, when he compared the notes of what both people had experienced while under the influence of the of the DMT, he found that um, they sometimes shared the same hallucination, uh, if you even want to call them hallucinations you know uh but i i suspect they're not hallucinations just like dreams aren't really dreams right uh and so it's just it, it, this whole idea of shared dreams is fascinating i i remember reading once that there were certain aborigines in, in australia who if they dream about like murdering you or doing something bad to you the next morning they'll approach you and apologize for what they did to you in the dream the night before you know they like take full responsibility for for their dreams and their nightmares, I don't even know if they make a clear distinction between the two of them. Uh, so I just think it's fascinating that. Um, oh well, you could go on and on about the possibilities of of, of sharing dreams and and how, because in that that case, it's clearly there's no way to explain it other than that that's a shared dream. You, you know, I mean, obviously it was they were having the same dream simultaneously.
3: I've heard several stories that are similar with people that sleep together in the same beds that do have this overlap, and I've certainly experienced what I considered. I have no way to prove this, and which is another reason why I love actually this topic anyway. Uh, with one of my dogs in particular, it's now passed. I I swear she was sentient in the dream we've had yet. There's no way to prove this, but we would do stuff like we did in waking life, and it, there was pushback from her. It wasn't like she was a component of my psyche, you know, as a mask for some function. And uh, yeah, I find this fascinating. I have dreams shared with people that were, I was not in bed with, and uh, and had full full details, like they're. Dream groups that do this where it's almost like remote viewing where you come in and you give details first before the person's kind of like the dream master unfolds what what actually was the target place and what was the goal of the meeting and had great success with that with some people.
2: That fa- that's fascinating because that, as I mentioned earlier, that's essentially the plot of uh, Call of Cthulhu. Uh, yes. Because in there, there's all these catastrophes going on, and there's these various sensitives around the world who who are having the same dreams. And in that case, uh, implication is you know predictive dreams.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Have you ever heard the uh, rumors that the Deepwater Horizon accident was some sort of Cthulhu ritual? <laughs> <laughs>
2: No no that's pretty good. What 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 do you know about it?
1: That's all That's all I know. I just heard that oh.
2: One of the <laughs> No no, no. no I, conspiracy theories, yeah. Isn't that I great, would though? I would love to know. Yeah, you know, yeah, I would love to know <laughs> more about that absolutely. I I love craft. I mean constantly. You know, yeah, I think it's fascinating, you know, for someone as we said earlier who was so who's very much an atheist and and very really materialist and and pragmatic. Um uh, that so many of his stories have attracted occultists like Kenneth Grant, who, who uh, Kenneth Grant has written many volumes, sort of analyzing Lovecraft as more as the um, the, the, the Pope of a new occult age. You know, I, I'm sure Lovecraft would have been amused by that. Uh, and yet, at the same time, you look at the stories, and I read Kenneth Grant's analyses. Of Lovecraft stories, and I don't think that it's it's way out there at all. <laughs> you know, I, I, I read Kenneth Grant's analysis, and I think, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yes. it seems very valid. <laughs> uh, either either Lovecraft knew all this stuff because he studied it um, and was conversant with it in terms of research of of, of mining this kind of material for for the fiction, uh, or or his subconscious was just plugged. Into the universe in some weird way that we can't even imagine. Um, the, that I'm
3: kind of a subscriber of that. So, sure. do you
1: think some of the Cthulhu, the Great Old Ones, would relate to like the uh, uh, Typhonian stuff, the the back of the tree of life, and
2: well, you know, uh, I you were this kind of ties into a question you asked me earlier in in a weird way. It's it, it's going like the long way around. Robin Hood's barn, but uh, let's let's take the detour. Uh, you 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 mentioned like early influences, and uh, I already mentioned Ditko, Steve Ditko, earlier. But my dad, um, I mean, you asked me if my dad had ever like raised me with a particular religion. The only religion I know of that my dad behested to me without his him knowing it was in the closet. He had a box of coverless comic books, um, and this was probably the closest to a religious experience. That I had as a child. They, they, my my older brothers had gotten to these comics before me, so they had no covers. They had played with them like toys and stuff, and so the covers had long vanished. But what he had was, was my my dad told me that he had trouble sleeping, and that he couldn't. Uh, he worked the night shift at U.S. Steel, uh, which I'm sure was physically and psychically grueling, uh, and. He said he couldn't read a book. It was just too much for his eyes to focus on words on the page. But he could focus on a comic book. And so he would buy comic books um, at Frank's Liquor down in Torrent, downtown Torrance. And uh, he'd take me down there. He'd buy, he'd buy a six-pack of beer, horse racing form, and I could pick out a comic book. So I remember buying uh, Jack Kirby's Black Panther comics in the 70s, uh, Devil Dinosaur, Machine Man. uh jack kirby's (laughs) captain america comics from the 70s um before that my dad had these comics that went back to the late 60s and and earlier but what's fascinating is my dad didn't know who jack kirby was but invariably all the comics he bought were either kirby comics neil adams he had a good eye for which were the good comics but he didn't really know anything about it he just bought them at random uh, uh, and so later on, I was really impressed that he had like forever people number one or, or the first issue of Jimmy Olsen that Jack Kirby worked on when he left Marvel, went over to D.C. Uh, uh, this comic book fans will know what I'm talking about. But uh, w- where I'm getting to is that Jack Kirby um, has all of this esoteric, hermetic, Rosicrucian, even Masonic symbolism embedded in his work. Uh, and I just I just finished writing an article in which it's 10,000 words, and I focus on the Hermetic, Esoteric, or Secretion Masonic symbolism in the Incredible Hulk number one.
0: It's <laughs> just the first oh, issue. Wow.
2: Now, now it, it, most people upon hearing that, if, if, if they're comic book fans or they know who Jack Kirby is, or they would think that's just crazy. Obviously, if you look for anything, you can find it. But the, the truth is that that's not true. Uh, I, I've tried to find it in other places. You don't see it because it's not there. So I wrote this article and I I gave it to someone I know and I said, when you read the article and you get to the end, do you think I'm just totally like lost my mind, or do you see like a logical thread? And she said, oh no, I can see it. It's perfect. You lay it out perfectly. <laughs> you know the, the evidence is is right there. So. And, and and by the way, you know, uh, comic book fans will know that Jack Kirby worked uh, ostensibly with with Stan Lee on these early Marvel comics, the Hulk, and all this. And yet, if you look at stuff that Stan Lee did apart from Kirby, the symbolism's not there.
1: Yeah, it so, was, but, all so it that, was all Kirby. It was all Kirby.
2: It it was all Kirby because then later on, stuff that Kirby did by himself, and he went to D.C., even later, is loaded with it as well, Uh, and particularly the fourth world stuff, the new gods, the forever people, which I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, Mr. Mm -hmm. Miracle. These things are just loaded with it. And and if you look into Kirby's background, he grew up in the Bronx, um, uh, and his parents were very um orthodox jews and i i he tells a story in an interview and i quoted in the article about him waking up he, he had a fever um some sort of uh flu or something and there were he there were 10 rabbis dancing around his bed chanting saying things like uh be gone demon leave this boy demon uh um <laughs> So and then later on, Kirby does a kind of book called *The Demon*. Uh, I, I, I consider it to be one of his masterpieces, which is he did for DC in the 70s. And and so you see that these things were very real for him, and that he was raised, probably was taught the Kabbalah to to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And and I think that either that stuff, either he was purposely putting it in to the stuff, or. It got into his head early on, and he didn't even know. Just like what I just said now, where I said, "Hey, maybe the nun thing came from my dad telling me about the nuns." You know, I mean, maybe Kirby didn't even know he was doing it. But but I I lay out. uh, There's one point where I show examples of stuff he did earlier. Some of he, you know what I. This is particularly appropriate. Uh, Kirby did a comic book in the '50s called "The Strange World of Your Dreams." and the whole concept of the comic was supposed to be that readers would write in their dreams and then kirby would illustrate them Ugh, uh I now, now i suspect that yeah. that i suspect that in fact kirby just made up stories off of his head and they said they were based on dreams <laughs> that yeah, people had yeah, sent in
0: nonetheless
2: the idea it's uh, <laughs> fantastic and each story is near, now if you remember if you're familiar with the horror, or the horror comics of, of like the 1950s like ec comics tales from the crypt
0: The Haunt of Fear.
2: They were all narrated by these hosts, like like the Crypt Keeper or or the Witch, and you would see their face and they would narrate the horror story as it unfolded. In this, in the strange world of your dreams, it's narrated by a dream analyst. It's (laughs) it's narrated by like some Freud looking guy, (laughs) and he and you suddenly are plunged into this comic book that is the nineteen fifties equivalent of of Max Ernst. <laughs> in In four colours stapled, and you could buy it at the spinner rack you know for ten cents or less um and and each one is wonderful um uh and so you can see in there and there's one cover where there's a figure that's clearly you see the the, the cover is depicting a, some kind of occult ritual uh and there's some sort of high priest like in a cloak. And he's doing the sign of Pan, if you know, like Kabbalah and and Crowley. Um, the sign of Pan is a particular way that you hold your your arms. Uh, and Jack Parsons' the, the, the favorite high priest, Jack Parsons' favorite, yeah, absolutely. And so on the cover of this comic, you see the high priest in this ritual is doing that exact sign, uh, and it's and so I put them side by side. So here's Kirby's cover, and here's the photo of Crowley doing it. It's exactly the same, you know. So. I mean, that's just one example that I use. Like, here's a concrete piece of evidence that that clearly he knew about it and was putting it in there on purpose. Uh, And it's not just a coincidence, you know. Uh, And I think that um, these kind of things that Kirby was putting in there, Phil Dick mentioned uh, often about the whole concept of um, that the truth hides itself. Mm -hmm. The The truth hides itself in trash. Like, if, if if you want to find something that's really impactful, then you got to look where everyone else is not looking. Yes. So, in the 50s, that's why in the 60s, one of the great, you know, prime movers of of esoteric culture was a guy who was drawing comic books in New York. <laughs> and no art critic was looking at that stuff. No literary critic was looking at that stuff. And the people who were looking at that stuff were kids who had enough money to be able to buy a bunch of those comics and get assaulted by this stuff surreptitiously so that it would warm their way into their heads. Then later on, these kids became uh, went into the professional world. They became movie executives, and yes. they said, hey, let's make movies of these things. <laughs> and, 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 and now it's a huge multi-billion dollar series of films that are also loaded with this, with this imagery that is either on purpose or comes from the fact that it's based on the stuff in the first place that Kirby did. Nonetheless, it, it, it's this long train of putting these little secret mind bombs and planting them out of sight in comic books or in Phil Dick's case in, in, in uh, cheap science fiction paperbacks at the Greyhound spin rack. Uh and the most important artist, Lovecraft, uh, you know, was not recognized in his time. Right. His stuff was in Weird Tales, which hardly yeah. it was certainly not uh you know, that wasn't the, the smart set or are any of those magazines that, that Fitzgerald was or Hemingway was publishing in. Um uh and yet at the same time and and I write about this, by the way. You might be interested in the, the book I just published, B- Bale Lugosi and the Monogram Nine, which I wrote with uh, a friend, Gary Rhodes, uh, who's a preeminent uh, film scholar. Uh, we, we both love the films of, of Bale Lugosi. Uh, and so, there are these particular sequence of nine films that Lagosi did for monogram in the 1940s, and no one had ever written about them. Uh, no one had ever done a book about them. And so, we decided, hey, would it be fun? We'll, we'll split them up. We'll, we'll each write a, a chapter about the first film, Invisible Ghost, and then we'll divide them up. I'll do four, you do four. Uh, and and we did. The, the first one I did, which is about the film Invisible Ghost, is entirely... I. It, it, it's called Invisible Ghost, the Films of Bela Lugosi as Borderline Surrealism. And and I go in there about the dream-like logic of these B-films in the 1940s and how they were, even though they were cheap jack horror films, they were really surrealist films. And that that's the beauty of surrealism is that you don't even need to be aware of surrealism in order to be a surrealist. Yes. And a successful one. And in fact, it's, it's better if you're not aware of it. Uh, so we're talking about a conspiracy that works entirely on its own, and the, the conspirators are not aware that they are in, involved in the conspiracy. Uh, so the, the main 10 and I, I lay this out in my, which is the second chapter of the book, the, the one about invisible ghost, and I, I tie it into André Breton and his manifestos of surrealism of course the surrealists were fascinated by by Freud and by dreams and in there i lay out how the breton said if you want to be a surrealist the way to do it is you need to write without any inhibitions you can't take the time to finesse it make it perfect you just need to let the words flow out before you, your rational mind can even think of what you're doing. And uh, so I argue here that uh, in this particular essay that the B films of, of the 1940s that Hollywood was making at that time, some of them were made in three days. Like The Detour, yes. Edgar figure detour, which oh, is one of the classic so film noirs. Yeah. Yes. was filmed in three days. So great. Uh, and, and so these guys working at such a fast pace that they had no time to think about what they were doing. And that's how you get surrealist masterpieces because the guys, the guys at the front office, the people who are funding this stuff, first of all, they don't care as long as it's making money. Right. It's being churned out so fast, they have no way of censoring it. <laughs> in fact, they don't even care to censor it because they just think they're making junk, so it doesn't matter. And so that's how you get these insane surrealist masterpieces emerging from mainstream Hollywood in the 1940s. Um, and I, I argue in there that now uh, it, 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 filmmaking is, su- is such big money uh, that there is no room for chance or for accident, uh,
0: and you can't so have not,
2: yeah right you can't have art by accident you yeah know? so yeah. but and I and I tell this to my creative writing students because uh, students will come in they're very dejected they, they feel very. Uh, that they don't have freedom to to write or to speak their mind. And so in my creative writing classes, I try to get them to see, in fact, uh, this is a perfect opportunity for them. Uh, because when something, so in the 60s, if you were writing comic books, that was the place to be. If you didn't want to be, uh, you wouldn't be famous, except maybe amongst a certain circle of people. But if you want to get away with stuff, you go to the place where no one's looking at. It, right. Yep, so absolutely. you know, like making B films or whatever or writing science fiction like Phil Dick was. Now it's it's what Hakeem Bay called the temporary autonomous zone. The autonomous zone always is temporary. It it always that that zone where you're perfectly free to do whatever you want, it's mm-hmm. always moving. And mm-hmm. so you can't expect to get that freedom by, you know, I, Comic books. I mean, there was a time in the 1960s, you're just walking off the street and then you got a job writing a comic book, right? You, you just—it's not—it's big business now. You can't do that. So you got to find where is that autonomous zone. And I, I just, just a few months ago, I was teaching a creative writing class, and I heard that there was a Zine Fest in Long Beach. So me and my wife and my daughter, we went down there, and there's all these people in their late teens and early twenties stapling their stories and their artwork together yeah. <laughs> using photocopy machines. Yes. yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and the you know, I mean, you know, we live in an age where you, you post the wrong thing on Twitter and your life's over. The beautiful thing, however, is that if you staple something to a, a telephone pole or if you make a little pamphlet, if you can't link to it, these trolls don't think, they don't think it exists. If you can't link to it, it doesn't exist. That means if you just produce your artwork in print form, you're totally outside the radar. They're not looking at you because it doesn't matter. If it's not in electronic form, it doesn't exist. You can get away with anything you want in print. So this ties into Marshall McLuhan, who uh, Marshall McLuhan was one of the few people who wrote Understanding Media and the Laws of Media, one of the few people who understood what the effects of the electronic age would have on human consciousness. McClellan's, one of the laws of media that he created was, he said, uh, any technology, uh, when pushed to its extreme, flips into its opposite function. Mm. So the internet, when it first was, appeared in the 90s, it was the Wild West. This was the answer to getting around the gatekeepers. You can do whatever you want on in the internet. There's no one stopping you. Now, everyone stops you. As I said, if you post the wrong thing on Facebook, you're fired. So so the true freedom, so everything it flips into its opposite function. What was originally the ultimate avatar of freedom has now flipped into its opposite. And so now you have more freedom in print. So what you have to do is you just have to look around. And as William S. Burroughs said in Nova Express, uh, the general orders under emergency conditions is to look around and see what everyone else is doing and don't do it. Exactly. So, so there's actually windows of opportunity here for people but you just have to look where no one else is looking and then occupy that space before everyone finds out about it
3: i'm a big fan in my art of doing i'm really i like really fast and i still like analog but i mix them so like the music videos i make they're really fast the the, all of it i don't overthink nothing's overthought and and ha- having done films in the past where everything was overthought and it would take forever to do one film, I can get like seventy little Gonzo films done. and, right. and I like that idea. What you're talking about, like you can call it an when you push one f- going to an extreme all the way, you click back and you're at the other other end that's always spoken to me in a psycho, very deeply psychological uh in a symbolic way within my psyche like that there's a makes a lot of sense to me it's like an internal ticker and if you overlay that with stuff in the creative realm there's a lot of juice to be had there
2: this is well, been- that no, that's the in. reconciliation of opposites. That was the, yes. one of the ultimate goals of the alchemists: was yes. to reconcile opposites, and that, that's where you have those um, the alchemical symbols of like the green dragon or the androgynous dragon, uh, the or the hermaphrodite in alchemy, the the cosmic he she. Uh, that that was yes. that was the goal to reconcile. Uh, opposites uh, a polarity that's what the you know that, that that's a symbol in um in masonry uh you know you enter the the, the lodge and there's two poles
0: yes uh, there's
2: two, there's two poles you know and so you <laughs> reconciling opposites is 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 embedded in these ancient uh, hermetic rituals
3: yeah this this goes way back in uh, it's like, it seems it's all over in mythos i'm wondering Oh, man, I can't believe it's eight already.
1: I, I want to say something. I was just—you were talking about uh, alchemy, and I was thinking the whole time you were talking about Jack Kirby—is that a lot of the comic book character origin stories are alchemical in nature?
2: Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I go into that in—I uh, <laughs> go into that in my essay about about the Hulk. You know, um, absolutely. He's, he's, turned in, he's turned into the Hulk by. The G bomb. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, okay. it, you, 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 can't, it, you can't really get more blame than that. No, it's um,
1: so and the, I don't know if you've uh, seen any of the uh, DC comic shows that, that uh, CW's made lately. The Cringeworthy Network? I not know. <laughs> CW, whatever CW well, stands for. But like The we, Flash, we, we, or we, sorry.
2: Oh, the Flash! Uh, well, yes. <clears throat> well, of course, <clears throat> the the Flash in 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 um in the comic books, the Flash is turned into the Flash through a, 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 a chemical yeah. experiment, lightning hitting mm-hmm. the chemicals. Yes, and, and uh, Grant Morrison, uh, who is a comic book writer, mm-hmm. who's very well aware of all this, and 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 uses the symbolism on 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 purpose in, in his comic books. Uh, he wrote a great book called Super Gods, where he analyzes these classic comic book figures through a kind of kabbalistic lens and uh he he that the the fact that each of the respective ages of comic books you know people who are into comic books talk about the golden age and there's the silver age so the golden age started in the 40s the silver age started at the beginning of the 60s and then, and then there's the bronze age which starts like in the early 70s and 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 then and then the dark age Uh, Alan Moore and Frank Miller (laughs) brought in 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 the 80s and and Graham Morrison points out how each of the characters that triggers these respective ages which obviously was decided after the fact uh, people decided oh that's where the age begins that's where it ends it's Mm -hmm. obvious in retrospect right? Mm -hmm. no one decided that at the time but Graham Morrison said each of of these ages is brought about by the Kabbalistic Thunderstrike Captain Marvel the original mm-hmm, Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. you know, Shazam, they call him Shazam now, right, but DC, he right? was called Captain Marvel. His, the, the, the symbol on his chest is the Thunderstrike. Mm-hmm. Then the uh, in the Silver Age, mm-hmm. it begins with the Flash. Uh, uh, Julius Schwartz, uh, when he, Julius Schwartz, who was Lovecraft's literary agent, then went to work for DC and revamped all the DC superheroes. And the first one he revamped <clears throat> was, the, was threw, the Flash.
1: Threw a sprinkle and, mercury and of mercury in there, too, to go with the lightning
2: there there you go and and then the flash <laughs> has that bolt of, of, of lightning on his chest and then and then the bronze age uh you have uh, jim starlin's work on on warlock adam warlock <laughs> 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 and and warlock's the symbol on his chest is the lightning bolt and then and then uh you have the um the beginning of of the, the dark age, which is Alan moore's Mr., uh, miracle man number one which precedes watchman precedes dark knight and, and miracle man which is a takeoff on shazam or captain marvel he too uh has that lightning symbol on his chest so each of these respective ages is brought about by that kabbalistic thunderstrike. uh fascinating isn't it i mean it's almost like it was planned
1: <laughs> well no that's a whole other discussion
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, that's hey, yes. and oh, yeah
1: absolutely i, I yeah, look that. at it as a pattern that's playing out Not so much as a plan, but a pattern.
2: Absolutely. I would agree with you.
3: There'd be magic there.
1: Well, there's something.
3: (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. Not intentional, but the magic of the synchronistic aspect Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Oh, uh, also, Chris Knowles has written a book. Was it The Gods Wear Spandex? Something like that, about comic books and esoterica. I'm looking it up.
3: Did oh, we yes, get I, any questions from the chat at all? No,
1: not, not that I saw. Them. The gods were our gods were Spandex.
2: Yes, yes, uh, I, I do. In fact, I, you know what? I might have quoted from that in <laughs> the article that I, I I I wrote about the the Hulk. Um, uh, that's yes. There's there's been a number of books uh, recently uh, that, that sort of hit that uh that theme. And and Grant Morrison uh has had his own there's a fascinating documentary. You can see it on YouTube called Grant Morrison Talking with Gods uh, mm. uh where he talks about purposely Invisible, um uh, peppering uh you know use, using magic himself to yeah. create some of the uh tie books. So you you go from uh, an age where people were doing it unconsciously to some extent uh, I think in, in Kirby's case, you can argue that, that much of it was, in fact, conscious. And then, and then moving forward uh, to where people like Graham Morrison and Alan Moore actually uh, claim to be ceremonial magicians and, and use the magic on purpose to create the the storylines and the characters uh, from which these the comic books are emerging.
1: Well, you've heard Morrison's um, uh, DEF Defcon story about the Invisibles, right?
2: Um, was this about the trip to the uh to the mountaintop? Yeah, that was part just, of it,
1: and then how the Invisibles, as he was working on it, started to come alive in his life. And he realized he was creating a sigil, a hyper sigil.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes, mm-hmm. that 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 is that is fascinating. The Invisibles is um uh I, I consider that his masterpiece, uh a fantastic uh comic book, and uh I, I really I highly recommend it.
1: All right, I do have a question now. Yes, from the peanut gallery. Uh, what? I'm going to ask Robert. Have you found that joining the Masons helped you gain clarity in regards to your mastery over your symbolic language, or was the main benefit of the brotherhood aspect?
2: I I, I would say that it's it's kind of like um, I told you the story about the dream. And mm-hmm. I saw the Masani Research Center, and it was and it was filled with all these crazy books and and all this weirdness, you know. And then I and then I actually got there, and it was just this like one <laughs> raggedy little bookshelf, you know, with nothing on it.
1: Have you visited uh, any large done. libraries since then? I,
2: I have. In fact, I, I served as the assistant librarian at mm. the Scottish Rite Library, which was much more extensive. In fact, had a, an original. I held it in my hands. I I, I looked through it an original edition of Manly B. Hall's Secret uh, Teachings of All Ages before it had that title, the longer title, uh, and in a gigantic wooden slipcase. Oh, (laughs) my God. Uh, (laughs) Larger than any Toshin book I've I've ever seen. Uh, And uh, an amazing, beautiful uh, artifact. In and, and fact,
3: books are porn to me. That is, oh my god!
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing. And, and so I had free. What, what it, this is? Okay, uh, uh, th- <laughs> let me make the first point, and then I'll go back. The first point is when I when I saw that that bookshelf and it filled with like, and I realized that my bookshelf bookshelf at home was better. You might think, oh well, that's like a disappointing, you know. Punchline, and you're just sitting there with ash in your hands, you know. But in fact, if you have the right eyes to see, uh, that pile of ash is actually filled with much illumination and and magic. And that's why I think much of this is self-initiation, uh, because that's why you're not supposed to approach people and say, "Would you like to be a Mason?" Yeah. Uh, they have to come. They have to come themselves. And when I tell people. <laughs> it, 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 you know, some people criticize Manly P. Hall like actual scholars, and they'll say, "Manly P. Hall, where's his footnotes? Where are the endnotes? Like he quotes <laughs> these people, and where can he? Where's the original source? You know, he's not—he's not really a legitimate scholar, is what they'll say. And what I think is that that was actually part of Manly P. Hall's entire purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to include endnotes. I'm not going to include footnotes. I'm not going to tell you where the original source is. You have to go find <laughs> go it find, yourself. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, and 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 so when um, I went to uh, the Scottish Rite because I was working on an article for New Dawn and I wanted to y- access to their library because they in fact did have old Masonic uh, articles way back um, and and books and uh, but the the librarian the guy who was the librarian you could only go in when he was physically there um, the rule was that you could only go in when there was a librarian there. And I said to the guy, well, I, I need more than just like an hour. Uh, you know, I, I need, uh, you can't take the books out, so you have to be there. And he goes, well, I can't, you know, can't be here. He goes, you seem like a bright guy. How about you be the assistant librarian? Then you can be here by yourself.
3: <laughs> Excellent.
2: And I go, okay, that's good. And oh, and so goodness. I was officially the assistant librarian. So <laughs> So then I would go there every morning like at 8 and get there, and I'd open the door. I Now I have the keys. <laughs> I was the holder of the keys now, and I would open the door, and then I was there, and I would do all my research, uh, which, which eventually evolved into one of the chapters that's in cryptoschatology. Um, and uh, so people would come wander in, uh, and, oh, the library's open. It was like a rare occasion. They'd come in, oh, I can look at the books. And this old man came in, who was probably in his late 80s, and he was there with uh, with his son, I think, who was like in his 30s uh, or older. Uh, and and the old man said, ah, uh, it's fantastic to see the library open. And I had a Manly P. Hall book sitting there. And he goes, oh, Manly P. Hall, I met him. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and, and I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, Manly P. Hall came and lectured here uh, in the ritual room. And he said it was like 1970-something, and Mr. Hall went up onto the stage and he delivered a three hour lecture on the symbolism of the cross uh oh, with no sure. notes. Oh, I <laughs> it. <Love> it. <laughs> no no notes entirely <laughs> off the top of his head yeah um <laughs> and oh. then so so as a result, I would sit there, and people would come in, and then I'd you know strike up conversations with like these old basins coming in uh and then I would go back to the research and i I did that for several weeks uh you know on a daily basis
3: that's wonderful i love that what a treasure in mm-hmm. the end
0: oh yes yes uh, absolutely
1: that's all the questions that i've got i think you don't don't did you get all your answers
3: yeah yes all this right. has been a great pleasure robert Yes. thank I, you so much i feel like we need more
1: <laughs> I think we need to do an obelisk on comic book yes. symbolism or comic yes. book esoterica.
2: Uh that would be fantastic. Yes, absolutely.
1: We have another show that we're starting next month called The Obelisk and we're just going to go deep dive on subjects. So, maybe we'll have oh, you back sometime. I can
3: take calls and and take phone calls. Yes.
2: And- oh, I see. so so this one will be specifically about dreams. Yes. And then the other one, the obelisk, will be about a whole multiplicity of different subjects.
1: A silo yes. of topic. Silo topic. Well, I
3: see, I see. And we found these these our dream shows, they as you could tell tonight, and with um with past ones too, they meander in their own way and they have each episode has a life of its own, according to the guests, of course. And so I well, think it's just a good bridge from here to there To just
2: yes you know i you know, would love uh, uh alan greenfield he spent maybe like five minutes talking about working for illuminate press in the 90s i'd love to hear yes. an hour on that yes. <laughs> oh. about ron bonds and jim keith and all those guys uh illuminate press was was fantastic i i i had probably almost all their books before mm-hmm. ron bonds uh, uh sadly died
1: we're planning a show with uh with alan and with john tenney and greg newkirk three of them to do like a past present and future ufology
0: oh great yeah kind that's fantastic
1: yeah,
3: yeah. i'm writing this down though with this idea with illuminate press and ellen just so i have it here on my diary because i love that idea too Robert. yeah
1: there's so many we're open to exploring anything you know as long as we have a guest to talk about it <laughs> So well, thank th- you.
2: Yes, I, I, I would love to hear uh, Alan Greenfield talking about the, the, the golden age of ufology, a, a subject that I'm okay. m- much interested in and, and, and inspired my second book, Spies and Saucers. So the, those three novellas were very much grew out of you know, me uh, freebasing the 1950s contact e-book.
1: <laughs> you should email, reach out to him. He'll talk to you. He loves to talk.
2: Oh, that'd be great! Yeah, I'd lo- I'd love yeah. to. The secret Cipher for the ufo Knots, in fact, inspired a, a short story that I'm that I I recently finished writing and it is being read right now by an editor. Uh, but but reading that book inspired this particular short story. So Excellent. that's great. <laughs> you might be interested in hearing about that.
1: I'm sure he would. And if you send him fifty bucks, he'll be your friend. So
3: <laughs> he is a legend. And also, I guess what you know where can people find you and all that
1: yes plug plug your stuff dude
2: uh okay so all the books are available on amazon camellio uh spies and saucers cryptoschotology bell legosi and the monogram nine until until um until the last dog dies which is a novel about uh uh, a humor virus that it doesn't kill you but it just destroys the humor center of the brain and it goes pandemic and it's told from the point of view of a stand-up comedian in Los Angeles and midway through the book, he, he comes down with the humor virus and he starts losing a sense of humor. So it's, it's a parable for our times. Oh, uh, I, 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 I think, um, and all of those are available on Amazon and my website is, uh, cryptoschatology.com.
1: And all these um, links is, are in the show description.
2: Excellent. Most excellent.
1: And the show notes on the podcast. Great. Great. Well, that's all I got. So thank you yes. again, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Okay. And hope to talk yes, to you again sometime. come
3: on to the obelisk. We, we definitely.
2: I, I would love to do that. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, this has been very fun.
1: Right. Yes, it's been a blast. Thanks so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And be sure to tune in next week when we have special guest Jordan Maxwell. So that should be a trip. Oh, already. Already. That's already. Yep. Wow. So thanks, everyone, and take care, and have a great night.
3: Good night, everyone.